From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. He is, by his account, world champion. Of what? Well, that depends on when you ask. It may be easier to pin down Judah Friedlander's resume as an actor and comedian in movies like Wet Hot American Summer, American Splendor, Meet the Parents, and The Wrestler. Maybe you'd recognize him and his hats from NBC's 30 Rock, where he played the slumpy and kind of sleazy Frank Rosatano. Surely our massive conglomerate parent company could spring for a samovar of coffee. Yeah, or like a big coffee dispenser. That's what a samovar is. Are there other black nerds, or is it just you and Urkel? Now let me hear you say the seven most important words in the American judicial system. My client has no memory of that. God, it's bad enough having Jenna hang out here. Now she's bringing her friends. How can a dude in a midriff top dominate me like that? Or from America is the greatest country in the United States. His stand-up special streaming on Netflix. Judah Friedlander is now hitting stages across the country with a new show, Judah Friedlander, Future President. And he just swept through Georgia, and we're catching up with him at NPR in New York. Judah, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me here. Well, I'm wondering about how the whole world champion thing, how that squares with this campaign. The world champion persona... You know, I, I, I started doing that, I don't know, 20-some years ago. Mm-hmm. And initially, when I was doing that in my stand-up act, that was, you know, I mean, there's tons of jokes involved, but it was ultimately a satire on narcissism. Uh, and I was kind of doing it on an individual level. You know, people's just, uh, you know, the, the bragger, the person that's always bragging and talking about themselves. And then it's sort of, more, you know, it's morphed over the years and, and grown and changed and had layers to it. And then uh, about 10 or so years ago, I started talking about um, outrageous, you know, presidential platforms of mine. And I really turned it into um, a satire on not individualistic narcissism, but the narcissism of America as a nation. Uh, You know, I think no matter what um, political background you come from, or what economic background you come from, through the media and through schools. As Americans, we're taught that America is the greatest country, not just currently, but in the history of civilization. And, you know, I think it's a good thing to be confident, but to be overconfident to the point where you get arrogant, then that blinds you to any possibilities you might have. I would would love to give people a sense of that. This is from your 2018 Netflix special, America is the Greatest Country in the United States. Let's hear a clip. Netherlands, another question. Um, <laughs> when a woman in Netherlands gives birth to a baby, how much time is she given off of work and maybe even paid for that time off of work? One year. Women in Netherlands are given a year paid leave after giving birth to a baby. You know how much time women in America are given off of work after they give birth to a baby? Zero. <laughs> and you know why? It's because our women care about the economy. <laughs> That's why the euro's going down. <laughs> Number one. Well, tell me more about that. You know, so you are able to talk about American exceptionalism in a way that I'm guessing, you know, for bipartisan audiences. Are are you the one uniter that we have here, Judah, being able to talk about this in a way that doesn't set alarm bells off? Well, I guess I am a uniter because I, I tend to make people happy and angry on all sides of the issues. So uh, so maybe I am. <laughs> 
I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting now, and it's it's changed a lot in the past couple years, because I'd say, you know, starting like three, four years ago, most people in this country kind of viewed politics as either a left or a right, you know, Democrats or Republicans. And then in the past couple years, I think many people, even people that don't pay that much attention to politics, uh, have noticed that there's a, a fracturing amongst the within the Democratic Party and even within the Republican Party. So it, it's you know it's interesting how political culture has has become pop culture in the past few years. Mm-hmm. You know, people used to be able to uh, quote every line from uh, some dumb reality show, or they would know every offensive play uh, for some sports team, but they couldn't tell you one thing about uh, human rights or. Uh, different government laws in uh, in our country. And now people, um, they know a lot of that stuff, or certainly more of that stuff. They still might be, uh, you know, misled or arguing in bad faith, but they're certainly paying more attention to it. So it's got a little more interesting in that angle. Well, um, so on this tour, Judah Friedlander, future president, you, you're a mm-hmm. candidate, basically, holding town hall sessions along the trail. You're just in Atlanta and in Athens. Well, it's a... It's it's a mock town hall. Let's let's be honest. It's, okay. This is not a serious town hall. Uh, I'm doing stand up comedy, but you know, instead of just doing a, you know, a monologue like like, you know, probably the majority of stand up comics do, I, you know, I'm someone in my act who's always done um, a lot of one liners, a lot of jokes, and I've always done a lot of crowd work, mm-hmm. and and there's always been heavy persona, um, and. Uh, so what what I do is I sort of run like a mock town hall. You know, most comics don't want the audience ever saying anything to them during the show. I'm the opposite. No, I don't want people yelling stuff out randomly. But, you know, I invite the audience to say, hey, you know, I might have to be president someday. Ask me any questions about my presidential platform. What issues are you concerned about? And then I come up with jokes and do jokes uh, on those issues. What, you know? what and, kind of things do they ask you? Oh, well, you know, a lot of them are the same. And, and you know, when I, when, I, when I create comedy, you know, like health care is a big one. Immigration's a popular question. Abortion's a fairly popular question. Uh, gun control's a pretty popular question. So, you know, the, the way I write also is, is different than the way of probably a majority of the comics write. I write a lot on stage and off stage. Mm-hmm. So in my stand-up movie that's on Netflix, um, you know, I have bits about, I probably have three to five minutes of uh, material on healthcare in there. And in there, um, the, the jokes initially came where I went up on stage with no prepared material on healthcare. I asked the audience a question about my presidential platform. Someone yells out healthcare. I come up with a joke on the spot. That joke gets a laugh. Now, the next time I do a show and somebody asks that, you know, yells out that same question, I'll repeat that joke and then I'll try to add a joke on top of it. Mm-hmm. So, a joke that started out as one joke, um, you know, a bit that started out as one joke in it, now might have, and it was like 20 seconds. Now it might be, after several months, might be five minutes. So, so, so uh, you know, so when I'm on, on tour now and someone yells out healthcare, I have plenty of bits, new bits on healthcare. 
Uh, and I also may come up with additional new bits that I haven't done yet. So it's a, it, it's a process. So, so there are certain subjects where I have lots of jokes prepared, and then there are certain subjects where I do not, you know, and I come up with and I create stuff. My guest is comedian Judah Friedlander. He's currently on tour with his new stand-up show. It's called Judah Friedlander, Future President. Well, okay, so you brought up a couple things there. One, in your comedy work, you often work the crowd. You're, you're talking to the crowd and coming up with something funny on the spot. But you're talking about things like, you know, healthcare, gun control. Obviously, this is a comedic setting, so that's what comes up. But I'm just wondering what role that serves to kind of, I don't know, diffuse the things that people generally get so upset about. How do you turn those into jokes? Well, you know, I, you know, first of all, I'm never someone who's punching down. I'm always someone who is uh, critiquing authority. You know, I like to look at things. I like to, you know, expose governmental hypocrisy. Uh, and all kinds of hypocrisy. And as a comedian, I never like to go for easy laughs. I always like to go to the most difficult, serious, and darkest places and create laughter out of those. So it can serve as um, a relief. You know, I I mean, humor is a way to, to get through. It can be a tool to get through tough times. You know, having a sense of humor about things uh, can be a way to deal with very difficult things. And it can also be a way to maybe see the bigger picture as to why we have certain problems. Um, So, but, you know, in my act, I don't do anything preachy. I don't tell people what to think. But to get my jokes, you have to think. So... Um, well, I'm thinking of, this is a tradition, right? There have been uh, Will Rogers ran for president back in the day uh, with the with the campaign promise that if he were elected, he would resign. Dick Gregory, yeah. <laughs> uh, Pat Paulson. Dick Gregory, yeah. yeah bu- and Pat Paulson. Yep, right. They both wrote books, too. Right. Yeah. And Gracie Allen way back in the day. Um, I, I remember the Gracie Allen line. Uh, oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, That's she did. Awesome. So she uh, she was, if people don't know this, she was the female half of the Burns and Allen team with, yeah. with yeah, George Yeah, she Burns. was hilarious. Absolutely wonderful. And, you know, but she she did play the sort of daffy woman, I think, in many ways. But that worked in this case. You know, she was asked as president whether she would recognize Russia. And she said, I don't know. I meet so many people, <laughs> you know, just, just sweet Gracie Allen kind of stuff. But I mean, did you. So is that one of the things that inspired you? I and mean, this has been done, but done in different times for different reasons, I think. Uh, no, I don't think it. that's what inspired me. I just. um you know, when I first started doing, um, well, actually, before I did stand-up comedy, you know, I was really big into political cartoons when I was a kid. And then when I first started doing stand-up when I was 19, I would do political jokes, but they were just sort of topical, superficial political jokes that usually had an expiration date, like like this politician said this, and then you do a little joke. But then about 10 or so years ago, I figured out a way to do political stuff that didn't have an expiration date because I didn't really talk about what this politician said, what that politician said. I talked about human rights, you know, um, you know, LGBTQ issues, uh, you know, environment issues, uh, gender issues, race issues. You know, these are things that unfortunately, as a society... Uh, don't improve that much with our government. Mm. For any kind of human rights, it has to be fought for 
constantly. Well, that's a dim view, isn't it? Yeah, but it's effective, I think, or at least it can be. Well, well then, I got, you know, I can be a pessimist, but I can then sometimes people like get mad at me for that. And I'm like, well, now you're being a pessimist. So maybe I'm pretty optimistic about my pessimism. Okay. There you go. I don't know. Well, let me ask you. Okay, so I confess, like when we when we got on the air, I had no idea if you were going to be your kind of world champion character or not. And and I, are you a persona when you're doing your campaigning slash your mock campaigning? You know, I don't even know if it's a persona. It's just uh, you know when I'm doing my show, it, it's a mix. You know, so, sometimes I might talk a little more like I am right now, and sometimes I might talk more like this overconfident, arrogant, delusional, uh, egomaniac type of a person, you know. Well, that's the saying, right? America gets the president it deserves. Is that is that you, Judah Friedlander, future president? Well, that's one reason I'm a comedian. And uh, I hate to blow the lid off of things here, but, uh, you know, even though I say I'm going to be the next president, or I might have to be the next president of my act, you know, it's... I'm a comedian. I prefer to be uh, an outsider who challenges authority instead of becoming a part of it. Boy, there goes our scoop. <laughs> <laughs> I like to give it to you straight. You know? <laughs> oh, Judith Friedlander, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Comedian Judah Friedlander, also author of the books If the Raindrops United and How to Beat Up Anybody. He's currently on tour with his new stand-up routine, Future President. And we will listen to Funky President by James Brown as we head into a quick break. There is more on Second Thought coming up in just a moment. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The nights are getting longer and the day is getting colder. It is high time to curl up with a book this holiday season. Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera are authors of What If It's Us, a young adult novel about two teens who fall in love over a summer in New York City. Here are Becky and Adam's additions to our Southern Reading List. That's our series of authors and readers sharing books that define and reflect the South. Like the first time I read, I just, you know, I remember crying while reading it and then crying while talking to her about reading it. I'm Becky Albertalli and I am the author of Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which is the Love Simon book, um, The Upside of Unrequited, Leah on the Offbeat, and um, the recently released What If It's Us, co-authored with Adam Silvera. So one Southern author that I have been really excited about these days is actually somebody who um, has spoken with GPB before, um, Nick Stone, who is from Atlanta, lives in Atlanta. Her first book is called Dear Martin, um, and it was one of my absolute favorites, but I'm really excited about um, her second book, On One Out. It is um, like a triple point of view story. Uh, about three teenagers. It's a YA book. It is um, YA contemporary and it is funny and voicey and it's about um, kind of a very complicated relationship between these three teenagers. We live in a pretty progressive area, as Mama likes to put it. 
And barring one incident in ninth grade involving some bigots picketing at one of my basketball games in deep South Georgia, the two-dad life has never really been a big deal. I'm so used to it not being a big deal, in fact, that Dr. Chin's shock catches me off guard. And now I'm really curious about Ray. It's crystal clear to me that Jupe was flirting with her, so Ray either didn't realize or didn't mind. I discovered her, it was actually um, a really interesting story. It was kind of a meet-cute. Um, so when I first met Nick Stone, it was at my launch party for my debut book, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. And um, she was there in the audience. I completely remember her. I had never met her before, but she asked the question. She's just so cool. Like, just her presence, everything about her is so cool. And um, she emailed me later. And, um, you know, in the email, she had read uh, my book at that point. And one of the things that she mentioned is she was a debut author herself. And she had a book deal with um, Crown Random House. And her book hadn't come out yet at the time. But um, she and I met up. It turns out, like, our kid, you know, our older sons are a week apart. Um, and so I was lucky enough to read Dear Martin early, and it absolutely blew me away. Um, like, the first time I read, I just, you know, I remember crying while reading it, and then crying while talking to her about reading it, and just trying to get through that conversation where I was trying to explain to her um, how much I loved her book, and then... Um, I don't think I was particularly articulate trying to explain that to her, but I do think she got the message because um, because that book is gut wrenching and and it's um, a tough read. You know, it's um, kind of a Black Lives Matter themed book, and it is um, it's not the most lighthearted topic to read about, but it's incredibly important to be reading those kinds of stories. And um, you know, and and Nick Stone has a way of telling those kinds of stories that's um not only accessible in general but she she really she really is a way of connecting with um teenagers and including teens who maybe aren't super into reading you know like i i would say um nick's books are top of my list to hand to to kids who um you know may not be that bookworm kid with like a big stack of books on their nightstand like Speaking as that bookworm kid, I can confirm that her books are also for the bookworm kid or adult. But um, but yeah, you know, she just she reaches a really broad audience. And that's something that's really special. I vividly remember sitting at the edge of the bed in the studio that I was living in, like getting to like the last like 40 pages and um, and watching everything come together. It's really masterfully told. Hi, I'm Adam Silvera, the author of More Happy Than Not and His Shoes All You Left Me, and they both die at the end, and I'm the co-author of What If It's Us. So one of my favorite books that takes place in the South is uh, Where Things Come Back by John Corey Whaley, and um, I'm from New York City, and I'm like used to sort of like this like bustling energy, you know, and then to read this story that is like very atmospheric with its sort of slow crawl and knowing um, the people in your town versus juxtaposed with like me passing hundreds of strangers every day you know that was a really incredible um, experience for me and uh, then you throw this uh, this like small town mystery into it as well and I it's very clear why it was an award-winning debut 
I was 17 years old when I saw my first dead body. It wasn't my cousin Oslo's. It was a woman who looked to have been around 50 or at least in her late 40s. She didn't have any visible bullet holes or scratches, cuts or bruises, so I assumed that she had just died of some disease or something, her body barely hidden by the thin white sheet as it awaited its placement in the lockers. The second dead body I ever saw was my cousin Oslo's. I recognized his dirty brown shoes immediately as the woman wearing the bright white coat grasped the metallic handle and yanked hard to slide the body out from the silvery wall. That's him, I said to her. You sure? Positive. It was in 2012, uh, so I would have been a little before I turned 22 years old. And uh, yeah, and like that was around a time where I was finally reading more contemporary novels. Like I grew up on fantasy and I was rereading Harry Potter over and over again. So I was like finally like getting introduced to new voices. And I was like, I was a bookseller at the time. So I was fairly tapped into um, which books were, you know, being released and stuff like that. But this book had gone completely under my radar. And then it, you know, went on to win the Michael L. Prince Award, which is celebrated for the best young adult um, novel of the year. And then it also won the William C. Morris Award, which was um, praised for the best young adult debut. And I'm like, whoa, what is this book that, like, had completely, like, missed my attention? And then I read it in one sitting, which is incredible for me because I am a very slow reader. I was underlining passages and highlighting. And I, I vividly remember sitting at the edge of the bed in the studio that I was living in, like getting to like the last like 40 pages and um, and watching everything come together. It's really masterfully told. There's also this really touching um, brotherhood in the book and uh, um, and just this character who um, Cullen Witter, the main character who wants more for himself. And I remember feeling that way, you know, like I grew up not having a lot. I grew up wondering if I um, would ever sort of achieve my dreams and um, and wanting sort of like to escape. And that energy was very easy to connect with. And uh, yeah, and again, like this, this mystery was so layered um, and it's narrated um, both from Cullen's point of view, in addition to some like interstitial um, like uh, passages and watching everything come together. It's just... It's an incredible collision, and I, I, I've read that book probably like three times now. You, you feel like you're friends with her and just kind of walking with her through this really tough experience. It might be a little strange to say this, because this is a book that um, is very deliberately set in kind of an every town. So it doesn't have a specific setting in the book. But I'm going to say The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. So when you read the book, when you see the movie, it feels very Southern. Um, and I think, you know, that's largely because Angie Thomas herself, the author, um, was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, Garden Heights, the community, the town where um, the main character star lives and where the um, events of the book take place, is based on Angie's neighborhood in Jackson growing up. You know, it's this really rich story that feels um, just just so complex and human. And, and you know, you get to know this main character, Star Carter, this little girl. I, you know, I mean, she's not little, she's 16, but, you know, she's like... Uh, Gosh, you, you get to know her so well, it feels like um, you, you feel like you're friends with her and just kind of walking with her through this really tough experience that she that she goes through. And um, 
you know, by the end of the book, the w- the way you feel kind of seeing Star off to go, you know, live the rest of her life. You know, it, it is it's one of those books where you're really satisfied. Like it's a very satisfying ending. Um, but it's it's kind of like that Harry Potter thing where you you have to have a good cry because of the book itself, and then a second cry because the book's over. Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera, authors of What If It's Us. Albertalli is author of Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which was made into the film Love, Simon. In addition to recommending books for our Southern reading list, Becky and Adam spoke about their friendship and the process of writing a book together over many texts and emails. Uh, so we met uh, back and we met online in uh, the beginning of 2013 after we sold our debut novels. So we share a literary agent and um, it was really exciting. Our books were like announced in the same week as well, just a couple days apart. And uh, shortly after that, we traded manuscripts with each other. So these were not like the final versions of our books, but, you know, I got to read Simon vs. the Homo's Debut's Agenda in December 2013. And Becky got to read my debut novel, More Happy Than Not. And we were just like geeking out over how much we loved these books like i still have the this memory of like going on a date um that month and like not wanting to be on the date anymore because i just kept thinking about the book and uh, and i had texted my agent and he was like go on your date like the book's going to be there and like the date was not great and i was like i could have been home reading this book um so no more like life advice from my agent but um yeah it, it just so it was like this really special feeling and then uh, we were just like emailing each other over the holidays as we read each other's books. Yeah, and it was one of those, like, really fast friendships that, like, clicked into place right away. And so, um, you know, we started talking about, um, you know, the book idea that eventually became What If It's Us. We started talking about that in, like, February of 2014. We still had not met in person, but at this point, and this is just from, like, December to February, our, like, email correspondence had escalated to the point where... You know, we, we were sharing some of the, like, very embarrassing, detailed stories um, from, you know, just earlier experiences, earlier dating experiences, or, you know, in my case, earlier experiences of wanting to date and not getting any action, <laughs> but, you know, just the different ways that, that played out. And, um, you know, and I think it was from one of those stories that... Um, you know, there's there's just this like seed of an idea in you know a really embarrassing story from my twenties that like hit Adam in a certain way, and Adam was the one who was like, you know, we should write a YA book about misconnections. Yeah, and then we just continued to develop who these boys were. Like we had their names like very like soon after that, and uh, and their names didn't change like they were always arthur and ben i remember like becky had arthur before i had ben like for the longest it was like arthur and guy was like my stand-in <laughs> name um but then we once it once i was like ben like that and clicked and then we just continued to sort of like throughout the years um up until we finally wrote the book last year in 2017 like we were just like how cool would it be if this happened if this happened and uh how can we push the story this way and so we were finally in position to finally write the book so I remember the first time when I met Becky, it felt like a first date <laughs> um, because like, it's like, you know, especially like if it, like an online dating, I guess, would be the sort of like equivalence of this here where it's like, yeah, you've been exchanging so many messages and everything seems to be going well. But it's like, 
I'm like, yeah, what if you like hate me in real life? And uh, um, what if I say something stupid that's like um, irreparable? And and yeah, so it just like I yeah, I remember like we met like on the corner, like up until the day that we met, we also hadn't even been on the phone until talked on the phone until earlier that day um and yeah so then it was just like but then we just like finally met and i think it was like outside sort of like outside like a, a riot Aid or cvs or something and where becky was standing when i first saw her and it was like yeah uh to make it a really special first date to like um that day that we met i was like eight weeks pregnant wasn't planning to tell anybody yet but like for you know this is with my second son for each of my pregnancies there's been one day where i've just been really really sick all day and i was lucky like only one day per pregnancy it was that day so um i i remember that first phone call the first time i ever heard adam's voice i was like hi i'm becky i've been throwing up all day <laughs> i still want to meet up i'm not sick here's what's up and um so adam um i yeah i remember um you know and adam was an absolute sweetheart of course and and so our yeah our first date was like sitting in a diner with me sort of picking around the edges of like a pancake or something, you know, just in, in like drinking water and trying to be present as, as a human being on earth without, um, ruining, you know, a very important meet cute yeah. in, in my life. What would turn out to be like a very important friendship, like in my life. Um, it was, yeah, yeah, that's a strange thing that, that that happened on that day. Yeah, you were pregnant with another man's baby on our first day. I know. <laughs> this is I know. I'm sorry, Adam. Respect. <laughs> the different details that show up in the book um, are, you know, and some of them are very consciously drawn from our own experiences, our lives, our friendship, or other things like unrelated to our friendship, but that are still a part of our lives. Um, but what we what what surprises me is we keep finding little details that you know, are pulled from our own experiences, but like very much accidentally. And sometimes we don't realize it until, you know, after the book has been finalized for months. Yeah. Like my uh, character, Ben, he is going through a breakup at the beginning of the book. And I was in a relationship that was like approaching its end for sure, whether I wanted to like acknowledge that or not at the time. And when I was like reading it back recently, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, no, I was definitely going through this like when i was writing these sections which was just so wild like yeah it's just writing is therapeutic that way whether you realize it or not That was Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera, authors of What If It's Us? It's a YA novel about a summer romance in New York City and it's about to be made into a movie. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back now with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. With about two weeks now until Christmas, you may be finalizing your travel plans right now, maybe scouring for last-minute plane tickets or playing mental Tetris to find out how many gifts will fit into your trunk. Maybe you're traveling home or planning a holiday getaway. That last idea recently caught the attention of Deneen Milner, host of GPB's Speakeasy podcast. She asked travel writer Demetria Lucas about it. Lucas used to write for Essence magazine and is nicknamed the Black Carrie Bradshaw after the Sex in the City character. Demetria told Deneen that she thinks it's important for black people to see the world, and she shared how she caught the travel bug when she went to London during her senior year at college. I loved it. 
I took an art history class and all these beautiful paintings of, you know, of Venice, of Paris, of Spain, all, all these amazing places. And I was like, why am I looking at paintings when I can actually just get on a flight for $100 and go for the weekend, a week, whatever? So instead of going to class, I would like go off to Rome. Oh, wow. Or, yeah, it was a wild world. I'd go <laughs> off to Rome. I'd go off to Spain. I'd go trekking around the UK. It was it was amazing. Wow. And it opened my eyes to so many different things. I almost failed the semester, but I saw a lot of world. <laughs> you got, I got, you got a lot of culture. <laughs> I got to see the world. <laughs> but, yes. to, to my, you know what? Mari, my older daughter, just went to study abroad in Botswana. She left a couple of days ago. Oh, and she's amazing. she's 19. And it I you know I cried when it was time for her to go because it was just my baby is going out into the world and for the first time I'm not orchestrating the whole thing she did it all on her own but and I told her that she was my hero because I couldn't see myself at 19 traveling to the next state like I'm from Long Island New York and it was a thing to get on the train and go into the big bad city like that's the way that I was raised right and here's my kid getting on three flights um, that took her well over 24 hours to get to Botswana, where she'll be living for the next two months. And I am fascinated by people who can do that, but specifically black women who can get on a flight and just say, you know what? I'm going to go and study in London. And then while I'm in London, forget class. I'm just going to go ahead and go to Rome today or I'm going to go to Spain today like what does it take to be that kind of person who can spread her wings and just fly off to another place without regard for safety without regard for um, you know your place in those those places and how you'll be received like did any of that cross your mind when you were that age well when I left for London it was before September 11th, so your parents could still take you up to the gate. Right. And I cried and I boohooed so bad. My mom was like, you don't have to go. And my father was like, oh, no, you got paid for whatever. So, yes. you know, he pointed a finger and I, you know, with my head down, boohooing and my mother, you know, fussing in the background because she's mad at my dad. And he was like, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. So, you know, like I got on the flight and I, I really wasn't sure what London was going to be. This is also pre, you know, like Pinterest and Instagram. Mm -hmm. So you can't just sort of look at pictures and see other people looking just like you doing right. the same things that you'd like to do. Right. So it was very scary. But then I landed at Heathrow and I met up with the other people who I was going to be living with in the program. I had five roommates. So it was kind of like a real world situation. Mm. There was mm -hmm. one other black girl. Guess who she w was roommates with? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like I got there and the world didn't fall apart. Right. You know, right. like it was scary and trying to figure things out. And I almost got hit by a million cars because traffic is on the opposite side right. of the street. Exactly. And I get to look. Right. But I didn't, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I had a day once where I was crossing the street and I realized that there was an ocean between me and the next person who could actually do something for me, who genuinely cared about my well-being, like right. just cared about me. Right. And I was like, well, I guess I have to take care of myself. And that was that. That's that part, right? It's like, how do you push through that fear and break down the barriers between you and a new place where the language or, you know, like the culture is not necessarily something that you are at all familiar with? So most places, someone speaks English, especially if they work in tourism. Mm -hmm. Someone will be able to give you basic directions to get 
in the direction that you need to go right? right and then from there you just you have a map and you point to the word and <laughs> someone will try to tell you with hand <laughs> signals or something right. how to get there right. i've had very great experiences like i've never you know been led down a dark alley but mm-hmm. i also you know just don't go down dark alleys in general but hey this is the alley I'm <laughs> right, not walking right. that way you know or I'm like this is a sketchy area like I don't mm-hmm. really know this place so mm-hmm. I'm going to stick to the main tourist attractions I'm probably not going to party late into the night I'm not going to drink when I go out so that I can have like all my awareness with me because I know that I'm operating at a default in a foreign place right but language barriers not really an issue there's a there's a common humanity like people see someone who is lost and they they usually they've been in that situation themselves mm-hmm. and so they want to help you get on the right path to right, where you're going right no you brought up something about as a black woman traveling and your safety mm-hmm. there is no place that i have felt more fearful than in the united states hmm. when Speak you go overseas it. as <laughs> as an american you're received as an american so sometimes people can will see me and they'll you know they might say like they might assume i am and i want people to listen to this very closely because it's going to sound kind of crazy but it also is not meant to. Mm-hmm. Um, when people see black skin, if they think it's native black skin to where they are, sometimes they act racist in a racist mm-hmm. manner. Mm-hmm. When you are an American traveling overseas, your accent trumps your skin color mm-hmm. in a lot of places, mm-hmm. not all, but in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And it's very unfortunate. It's extraordinarily racist. I want to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But when you're traveling as a black American, I've always felt more safe in any other country in the world than I do in America. You know, I just had this conversation with Mari like a couple of days ago. She said that she noticed a a marked difference between once people realized that she wasn't from Botswana, like as soon Mm -hmm. as she opened her mouth and revealed herself to be a black American or an African-American, whichever you choose, that the way that people responded to her and sort of opened their arms to her completely changed. Like they they just started treating her. um, She said not as well as the white American students, but doggone near close to it. And and she found that just odd and disconcerting and just like I'm in an all black country. What am I getting special yeah. treatment for? Um, and it just really it bothered her. Um, yeah. When it happens in Africa, it's really weird. Right. It's super right. weird because you're like, wait, like because I'm here like seeking, you know, a connection and a sense of kinship. And like, I don't really know where I'm from. So I'm going to different regions to see if anything stands out. And mm-hmm. these people look like my people, you know, something like that. Right. But when you start it, I think they think it's flattering right. to treat you like an American. And I'm just like, but I just kind of want to be more. I just want to be regular. Right. You know, right. Right. Like, I right. want everyone to have good treatment. I don't want to be treated well or treated better because I'm American. That's I want exactly everyone it. here to be treated like an American. I want everyone here to be treated well and spoken to politely. Right. Um, the way that you do to me because you think I'm other. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, I, I was fascinated when you started see some world you just managed to find all of these beautiful spaces um in all these beautiful places tell me about why you decided to do see some world you know it came from a place of ignorance 
and when I was living in Brooklyn, most of my friends were Haitian, and Haiti does not have great PR. If you mm-hmm. watch the news, there's mm-hmm. a very negative um, narrative about Haiti. And one of my friends went to Haiti. He came back. He put pictures from his trip on Facebook. And I was like, that's Haiti? <laughs> because <laughs> right, right. I didn't know. Like, all I knew was, you know, the, the earthquakes and, mm-hmm. you know, disease and poverty and things like that. Right. I didn't know anything else. So he was like, one, that's really offensive. And two, we're going to do something about that. Next mm-hmm. time I go to Haiti, you're going with me. So when I first went to Haiti, I didn't go with him. I went with another couple friends who were Haitian, who he told everyone that story and was like, Demetria thinks this about Haiti. And they all laughed. Oh, dang. They were like, that's so ignorant. You're an ignorant American. And I was like, I, I earned that. I right, deserve right, that because right, right. I am. So I went to Haiti and the side of Haiti that they showed me was so gorgeous mm. and so beautiful. Like you've never seen beaches more beautiful. You've mm-hmm. never seen food so good. Mm-hmm. And contrary to popular belief, there's significant wealth in Haiti. But mm. and you don't know about that because you never see it. Right. They have upscale venues just like we do. They have popping parties and popping bars and their New Year's celebration. People are out on boats with fireworks. Like it's crazy. Wow. But you never see that side of Haiti. So once I went and I saw it, I did Christmas in Haiti and I was like, so what else am I missing in the world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I went to Haiti and I went to South Africa and I went to Kenya and I went to Morocco and I went to Argentina and I went to Bali. But I go all these places because I just want to see for myself the side of the story that they're not telling us. Author, journalist, and travel writer Demetria Lucas there speaking with Deneen Milner, host of GPB's Speakeasy podcast. Sean Powers produced this segment, and you can hear more from the podcast and see photos of Demetria's travels at gpb.org slash podcasts. There is so much to do for the holiday season, shopping, cooking, visiting, traffic, and travel. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of what the season should bring. Just ask Charlie Brown. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. Charlie Brown. You're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. That is a clip from the beloved 1965 animated special, A Charlie Brown Christmas. In it, the Peanuts crew finds a way to combat the holiday blues and the overwhelming commercialism of the season to find the true meaning of Christmas. And like the endearing story, the music has endured as a holiday classic. The mellow, jazzy piano tunes were composed by Vince Guaraldi. And for the 12th year going, you can hear this delightful soundtrack performed live. A trio of musicians, Jeffrey Boots, on drums, T.T. Mahoney on keys, and Mike Bashira on bass will again perform this 40-minute score for Georgia audiences at three venues, Kavarna, Mad Life, and The Earl throughout the month of December. And we have two of those musicians with us here in the studio, T.T. and Jeffrey. Welcome. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. There are so many Christmas albums, so many holiday songs to choose from. So why this soundtrack from A Charlie Brown Christmas? What makes it endure? What's so special about this score? Uh, well, I mean, the tunes are uh, classics, chestnuts, uh, with a few, a few, just actually a few Garaldi originals interspersed. It's more contemplative, uh, and there's like a depth to it. For me, it's more about sort of the passage of time, and so I, I, I think I, you know, there's that sort of interiority to it, which is a nice antidote to the kind of relentlessly cheery atmosphere, <laughs> and so. Uh, 
you can't really tease out the impact of the album from the cartoon. You know? Yeah, so tell me about that, because you project the animated special behind you while you're performing, right? Do you, do, so are you staying true to the original score, or are you improvising that? Uh, it's in the spirit of the original score. Uh, you know, I, there, I, I quote from it, but I, I also freely improvise, so every, every show is different. You performed some of these songs for Atlanta AM station 1690 before it sadly shut down. That was back in 2011. Let's hear just a little bit of the performance. This is from Christmas is Coming. fresh though after doing it for so many years does what does it feel like to go out and perform this at christmas time well like tt was saying about it i mean being a jazz record we're not like looking at sheet music we just keep to the style and form of the songs and there's a lot of improvisation i mean i have to see tt i couldn't do it like in a different room we we, we all play off each other and so yeah, every night it feels fresh i mean it's it's a lot of fun well, you do it also. There are different venues. So yeah. tomorrow's show at Kavarna is all-ages show. But the ones at the Earl, that's 21 and up. So are there different vibes that you get from these different performances and audiences? Very much so. I mean, uh, those that have been inside the Earl know what, what that's like. But, you know, it's it's uh, definitely the darker uh, rock <laughs> club vibe, whereas Kavarna is a, a sun-drenched space. Uh, it's going to be all-ages and really great for kids. So... And you have um, to hold the audience of kids. Any special tricks you all do for that? Try to keep them dancing. Cookies, <laughs> right? We'll bring them cookies or something. <laughs> yeah, feed them sugar. I think that's a good recipe. And we're counting on the baked goods. Well, here's a clip from one of your performances. This is of Green Sleeves. So that's a kind of bossa nova vibe to the Green Sleeves, which is a traditional Christmas song. When do you start rehearsing this each year? I mean, is it like you have to warm up a little or is it like riding a bike now? <laughs> bike. It's a bike, yeah. <laughs> we get together like twice usually, um, right before the first show. These are super popular performances too. Generally, they sell out. Have you considered doing them at bigger venues? Uh, we've been approached um, and uh, we like we like the vibe at the Earl. I mean, it, that's how it started, and so it, it's really kind of impossible to imagine it anywhere else for me anyway. Yeah, that's why we've just added nights because, you know, you don't want to ruin what we have. Uh, that's why we do other venues for the kids because it is 21 and up, but the Earl is the Earl, and I don't think we'll ever – we'll just keep adding nights. Well, the Charlie Brown Christmas is, of course, about finding the real meaning of Christmas. So has performing this year after year, seeing people come out and celebrate with you and your music, given you some new meaning for the holiday season? Yeah, I feel uh, <clears throat> probably uh, a lot more connected to like a, a larger sense of community because people I don't know will approach me at different points of the year and tell me that how much they love the shows and uh, how they're excited to come the next year. And that's pretty humbling and amazing, actually. Yeah, it's a it's a fun thing. It brings a lot of our friends together, and we've made a lot of new friends through this. And yeah, I get you know I get to be a rock star for like two minutes out of the year, so that's pretty cool. Um, and this year again, 
Vince Guaraldi, and a Charlie Brown Christmas. I want to thank you both. Yeah, thanks for having us in. Thanks, Regina. Jeffrey Bootser and T.T. Mahoney, two of the musicians from the trio that will perform the score to A Charlie Brown Christmas on December 7th at Kavarna, December 17th at Mad Life, and December 20th and 21st. They've just added another show for December 22nd at The Earl. There's more information on all the shows at gbbnews.org. And that's it for our show today. We're going to leave you with another one from the trio of Bootser, Mahoney, and Bashira performing Christmas Time is Here from their set on AM 1690. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.